In New Jersey, we found Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts, Mike Perino. Casey McLean. And this week, we're going to give you a, another coronavirus update. We'll then go through Murphy's Corner, where we'll talk about his executive orders and statements that he's done. Uh, then we'll talk about some talk among uh, New Jersey uh, officials for plans of reopening uh, the tri-state area, grocery store limits. First person account story from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually have it. Yeah, I've experienced this firsthand. Uh, Newark issuing summonses and shutting downs of certain businesses. Then we'll talk about the Rumson men facing charges over an illegal concert. Uh, then we're going to have a great debate uh, over whether golfing should still be happening right now. Uh, after the headlines, uh, I'll talk about the New Jersey primary, Bernie Sanders dropping out, coronavirus. Like, what does all this mean for the great state of New Jersey and our primary? And afterwards, Casey's going to uh, talk to us about Annie Oakley. Yeah, the 2000, I think, 11 or 12 Hall of Fame, New Jersey Hall of Fame inductee. Great. Or- Sounds like this is going to be a, another, <laughs> another great episode if I say be a sharp shooting good time. <laughs> Well, so let's start off with we've been providing you the coronavirus case numbers and stuff uh, every week. In case you didn't already know. In case you didn't know. I think it's it's important to know. So I'm going to bring you the coronavirus case number um, as of April 11th. That's today. There are 58,151 cases in New Jersey, and uh, we currently have 1,700 deaths. About 92 people have fully recovered from coronavirus in New Jersey, which is you know, promising. Grim news, but we need to cover it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's important to, that we know the extent of, of what this is in in New Jersey, and as, as we'll go on and talk about with uh, uh, his uh, Governor Murphy's executive orders and statements, we'll get a better idea of what kind of new measures and things are being done. So, how about we turn to that right now? Um, Murphy's corner. <laughs> what has uh, the governor been doing in the past few weeks? Well, Mike, let me read you the latest executive orders. Last week, we covered executive order 114. So Governor Murphy directs U.S. and New Jersey flags to fly at half staff indefinitely in honor of those who have lost their lives or have been affected by COVID-19. This past week, so starting on the 4th, which is only recorded, so he passed it like right, right after we recorded. So Executive Order 115, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order to strengthen COVID-19 response efforts by allowing certain retirees to return to public employment. So we talked about that along with his past Executive Order to remove barriers for healthcare professionals to join the COVID-19 response uh, in last episode. So. Executive Order 116 following that, Governor Murphy signs executive order extending statutory deadlines for school districts whose elections were moved from April to May. And then Executive Order 117, Governor Murphy signs executive order waiving student assessment requirements for 2019 to 2020 school year, which I know we're all talking about how awful that students are missing their proms and their graduations, all of these iconic, you know, school events, but not having to take student assessments, like that's pretty, pretty rad because I remember (laughs) sitting in my classroom having to take, I forgot what they were when we were in, but it was basically three hours of testing in one day and it didn't affect your grades. It was just so the state knew if you were, you know, 
up to their standards, which some teachers disagree with having these kinds of assessments in the first place, because then you spend your whole year planning for the assessment and making it so that your students are able to test, you know, up to snuff for the state to give you aid. And that's not necessarily an education at that point. You know, you're, you're not learning things that'll prepare you in life. You're learning how you're going to pass this test. Same thing with the SAT. Exactly. You're just teaching for the test as opposed yeah. to, uh, so I guess they kind of lucked out. Yeah, yeah I, I did see uh, just to comment a little bit more about schools. I saw that he was asked about whether or not, uh, you know, um, are people going to be able to graduate like uh, or have the graduation celebration? There's no question that people are going to graduate. But it was like, are they going to be able to have the high school graduations and the colleges? And uh, his exact uh, <laughs> he said, I wouldn't put any non-refundable checks down on your celebrations right now. So uh, that's pretty definitive. Get it, Murphy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I kind of like pre- and appreciate Murphy's like sort of like no bullshit attitude towards yeah. with a lot of the questions he gets asked. Because you have to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, well, you, you know, I guess you don't have to be. You could yeah. go like who is it, Brian Kemp in Georgia, where you're just like, we only learned in the last 24 hours that uh, <laughs> that asymptomatic cases can be spread, even though we've known for like you know months. It's, or you can go like you know uh, Cuomo, where you just like constantly throw in not random optimistic stuff that has no basis in reality. But I like, I kind of like Murphy's no like flat, no nonsense, like like you yeah, know, like a machine. He's like, he's like hey, we're, in a, we're in the middle of a pandemic and you're asking about high school graduations. Yeah, people are dying. <laughs> like, that's a thing. Like, people are dying. Massive numbers like we've never seen before. Dying because of COVID-19. So cancel your wedding. Cancel your bachelorette party, your bachelor party. Cancel your graduation party. Cancel your engagement party. Cancel your birthday parties. Cancel. Just do, it, do it on Zoom. Yeah, do it on Zoom. <laughs> just that's do it safely if you really want to have it. Yeah, it works. Uh, canceled. Everything's canceled. Just move on. Uh, that's executive <laughs> um, order 118. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's canceled. That's when Murphy's like a few scotches in at the governor's mansion. He's like, you know what? Executive order signed. Canceled everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, but moving on, so Executive Order 118, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order closing, canceled, uh, closing state and county parks to further social distancing. And this caused, I think, a few people were upset about this because I think parents in particular, they want to get out of their house with their kids because everyone wants to get away from their kids at this point. And what better way than to go to a state or county park? But I guess my assumption, I mean, you could, we're speculating here, but my assumption with closing this is, again, you're not having to staff those parks. So if anyone gets hurt or breaks an ankle or that kind of stuff, you're not sending more people out to rescue other people for something. And I think it's a way to prevent further harm. That's just my opinion on it. And yeah, I'm torn on it. I, I saw that there were people who are petitioning the governor to reverse this policy. And I, I part of me like kind of agrees with it because it's like, why, why, why close the parks? But again, you do need to staff them. Yeah. And some people have did the, uh, drawn the parallel that Central Park in New York City isn't closed. And uh, that's true, but I don't think that's exactly the same. You can't really compare them because uh, uh, New York City is extremely densely packed and Central Park's probably like the one area where people can go that's large enough 
in it's all in the traffic. It. Like you yeah. can you can walk through that part if it were closed. I feel like you're not allowed in it. And I think with other state parks in New Jersey, you have bathroom facilities, you have different vendors, all that kind of stuff. So so close it completely it says complete social distancing and also not putting you know first responders in extra harm way you know i just kind of hope municipalities don't go overzealous on this like it would be a shame say like where i live if they close like the small park near me because then there would be basically nothing for any anyone to do besides just walk around the town i guess it just depends on how uh thing and the park near me isn't like staffed by anybody yeah so like maybe that's really just what it is like Um, it's not very it's not like highly frequented so it's not like it's not like some of these state parks where, uh, like last year I went to one, I forget where, up north of Ewing, and it was like a really nice, but I was shocked by how many people uh, were there. So maybe maybe these things were like highly trafficked because everyone has the same idea. Oh, it's nice out. Let's all go to the state park. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know where I stand on this. I go back and forth. <laughs> You're for it and also against it. <laughs> I'm for it and against it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but moving on, Executive Order 120, Governor Murphy announces postponement of June 2nd primary elections until July 7th, which we will talk about a little bit later in your segment, Mike. Yep. And very exciting stuff. (laughs) And Executive Order 121, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order allowing greater weight limit for vehicles carrying COVID-19 relief supplies. So this, I guess, is for the various kind of trucking industry uh, vehicles. So you're allowing, you have to go through the weigh stations. And if you're over or under, it's a way to, first of all, track that supplies aren't being lost along the way. But I think certain there are certain weight restrictions for vehicles to make sure that you're not overcarrying because God forbid you're in an accident or something, it's going to be more treacherous and a lot more st- like uh, supplies lost. But I think this should be good for the various amount of COVID supplies that needs to be brought around the state. So easing the regulations and making things easier for people to deal with the COVID-19 response. So Executive Order 122, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order to cease all non-essential construction projects and imposes additional mitigation requirements on essential retail businesses and industries to limit the spread of COVID-19. I have some more specific details about that. So I think it's important for people that read it. Yeah, from (laughs) the Executive Order itself, Murphy's saying that all essential retail businesses, that's warehousing businesses, manufacturing businesses, and businesses performing essential construction projects must adopt the the following policies at minimum. They have to immediately separate and send home workers who appear to have symptoms consistent with COVID-19 illness upon arrival at work or who become sick during the day. Promptly notify workers of any known exposure to COVID-19 at the work site consistent with the confidentiality requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act and other applicable laws, clean and disaffect the work site in accordance with CDC guidelines when a worker at the site has been diagnosed with COVID-19 illness, and continue to follow the guidelines and directives issued by the New Jersey Department of Health, CDC, and the Occupational Health and Safety Administration as applicable for maintaining a clean, safe, and healthy work environment. That was actually an issue, I believe it, Amazon, some other warehouses, um, not just in New Jersey, I actually don't, but but elsewhere where people would get that workers would be sick and they either weren't being sent home or their coworkers weren't being notified that there was somebody sick at that facility. It was like, you know, management trying to skirt the responsibility of, you know, uh, not go fully exploiting people in a time of like crisis like this. But uh, I think these are good. Uh, they should have been done earlier. It should have been done as soon as there was mandated that there was essential 
businesses anywhere, these guidelines should have been enforced. Like, I don't know why it seems we're on the tail end of these things. It seems like Murphy and, and other governors elsewhere are constantly expecting the business community to, like, just be proactive on this stuff, which I don't understand yeah. why, because they never are. I, I was just in the uh, grocery store last week, or maybe it was, sorry, like two weeks ago, and none of the workers had masks. And I was just like, why do none of them have masks on? And then today I was in there and they, they did have masks on because now they're like required to have them. And it's it, it's just bad. Like, see, like there's no proactiveness from these businesses. So they're just always going to take the short, cheap and uh, uh, least responsible path possible every uh, every time. So, I mean, good on the governor to actually do this. But why why not do it? earlier i think it's also what we talked about in previous episodes of i think murphy's trying to work alongside his other state representatives and trying to make sure that it's a statewide response versus these little pockets and trying to make sure that where he can work with people to make these things happen he will but that's why he has to pass an executive order for this because like you said businesses aren't being proactive and he probably was trying to make them be proactive without having to sign an executive order because that's when you have kind of a dictatorship. And I think he's trying to avoid that as much as possible because this is a pandemic response. It's an unheard of, you know, time. And he doesn't want people to look back on his, you know, his reign and say he was overzealous or underprepared or not doing enough. So because he's a politician at this point, you know what I mean? He's going to try to do things to make sure that after this event that businesses aren't going to attack him because he still has to he's an elected official and i I agree with that's probably his calculus but i think like i just would like for once if if politicians could you know uh defend working class people so that way when they get attacked later on for like oh you did all these dictatorial executive orders and you'd be like to do what make sure that you uh uh, we're safe people home Make sure that uh, your workers were wearing masks and had uh, adequate cleaning supplies. The horror. Like, here, I can go grab a hundred <laughs> uh, uh, people at like ShopRite, Amazon, and other workers, and they can all speak to how uh, my executive orders have actually helped them and how their managers weren't going to. Yeah. And uh, like that, that's, I just would like people to be more like adversarial and progressive in that way. But like, uh, and, and that's not Murphy. That's, that's me projecting what I would want <laughs> to do. Right? That's just not who he is. It's Governor Mike. <laughs> Yeah, if, if I was governor, that's what I would do. Yeah. Moving on, Executive Order 123. So the next one in this line. Governor Murphy signs Executive Order extending insurance premium grace periods. And then Executive Order 124, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order to establish a grant temporary reprieve to certain at-risk inmates. So this is an order I think is very exciting because... In these events, you kind of see, I guess, undocumented people and inmates, people who are kind of looked at as like the cast aside population. And you, with Trump's rhetoric, you know, America first kind of nonsense and the the Trump checks that are going out, a lot of people who are not going to get a Trump check are inmates and also undocumented workers and people who are undocumented in this country. And granting a temporary reprieve to certain at-risk inmates, it gets them out of that confined, you know, more often than not, different kinds of uh, prisons. You know, we're in a profit prison kind of (laughs) industrial complex kind of thing. So making sure that inmates are able to get out of there to not basically give them a death sentence, put them on death row. And I think it's 
caring and being concerned about people who are not thought of immediately in kinds of times like this is, I think, a, a good thing. I, I agree. And the governor's executive order creates the Emergency Medical Review Committee to make recommendations on which inmates should be placed on temporary home confinement through the Commissioner's Statutory Furlough Authority. All recommendations to place an individual on home confinement will be made after thorough review and consideration of the conditions that an individual may face in the community. He says, quote, my administration's top priority is the health and safety of all 9 million New Jerseyans including those who are currently incarcerated, said Governor Murphy. The correctional setting presents unique challenges to social distancing, particularly for vulnerable populations, allowing some of our most vulnerable individuals who do not pose a public safety threat to temporarily leave prison will protect both their health and the health and safety of the men and women working in our correctional facilities. With this action, New Jersey will join several other states and the federal government in taking necessary steps to strike a balance between public health public safety and victims' rights. So he, in this executive order, they break down four categories for priority early release. So this is individuals who are age 60 years or older, individuals with high risk medical condition as determined by the Department of Corrections in consultation with the Department of Health, individuals whose sentences expire within the next three months, and individuals who were denied parole within the last year. And individuals who have been convicted of a serious offense, including murder, manslaughter, kidnapping, sexual assault, robbery, aggravated assault, or any offense subject to the No Early Release Act will be ineligible for temporary reprieve. However, the committee would be able to consider any and all previous convictions when making recommendations for home confinement. So that's, so that's that. But it's, it's exciting to see, like I said earlier, the governor taking into consideration people who are not easily advocatable. That's a word, <laughs> you uh, know, like, yeah, so I agree. Cause you mentioned earlier, we have this kind of like prison industrial complex and like, we also have like a very punishment minded just, culture where it's like, yeah. we don't think of prisoners as people. They're like less than people a lot of the times cause they've committed some kind of crime. And but at the same time, almost everyone knows that a, a lot of a, a criminal, yeah, or like a lot of like crimes that people can get sent to jail for are, are bullshit. Like a lot of people know that the drug war is bullshit. Yeah. But at the same time, holding their head that like, well, if you're in prison, you know, you kind of deserve to have uh, all of your rights stripped, and you know, people will come up with fanciful, you know, weird revenge yeah. scenarios in their heads and stuff. I'm not, so, I'm not here to spin conspiracies, but if anyone has heard the story of Gary Webb, famous journalist and tragic hero of the yeah. journalism world uh look it up but the war on drugs is really a war on you <laughs> yeah yeah actually i 100 percent endorse that there's a good movie on it and um just read more about gary webb yeah but that's it for his executive orders and i think if you want to if you're a listener and you want to be more proactively involved, like we've said before, I'm going to give you the instructions on how to look up these executive orders. Also, the New Jersey legislation is being passed right now. We haven't seen anything that's been passed since we first reviewed the, the recent uh, laws that have been put into place since the coronavirus pandemic hit New Jersey. And right now there's a lot of bills that are waiting to be passed, but they're all have been introduced since we, I guess, started this podcast and started reviewing them. You can go to the Legiscan website, bringing the people, bring the people to the process, and it'll tell you all the New Jersey legislation that is in session 
things that are being introduced, things that are being engrossed, enrolled, passed, vetoed, scheduled. So be aware of what your politicians are doing. And then also, if you want to look up what Phil Murphy is doing with his executive orders, go to the official website for the state of New Jersey and you could go to Phil Murphy and you can go to his executive orders on that site and see everything that is being passed. And if you want to learn more details, they'll usually produce a press release, which will give you a bigger breakdown into why that executive order came to life and the reasons behind it. And it'll also give you some insight into why it was passed and his, uh, his reasons behind it, which I think more often than not, a lot of his executive orders are passing. He's passing them for a very specific and strong reason. He's not just trying to, like I said earlier, be a dictator, but it's always good to know what he's doing, why he's doing it and what it means for you. But that's, I think, the end of Murphy's Corner. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about the legislative thing real quick. So just because they're not really passing anything yet doesn't mean you can't pressure them about things that matter to you. Two related things are um, the CARE Act that Congress passed uh, stipulated that there will be an extension of unemployment benefits. And I've read online with the NJ Department of Labor have said that, you know, uh, they do believe that people who say whose benefits have expired will qualify for these benefits, right? Uh, these extended benefits. But they've set up no way for people to actually get those. So like we're we're heading into almost three weeks, two weeks, uh, two and a half weeks since when the CARE Act has been passed. And we're, like, how much longer are people going to have to wait for this kind of stuff? You should be pressuring your uh, representatives being like, hey, you guys helped get this stuff passed. Uh, so that could be like, I'd be like the congressional representatives, but also bug your state reps too. be like, you know, you're up for election in November. Like whoever can get me <laughs> the stuff that I need. Same thing with the $1,200. Like how much more longer are we going to have to wait? Like all like, Chuck Schumer and uh, Trump uh, checks. Yeah, like when are we gonna get our, our Trump checks? Like they all, you know, basically clap themselves on the back for having gotten this done. And then the, the only stipulation, the bill for when these things have to come out is that they have to be mailed to everybody by the end of of December of this year. I'm just saying, like people should be pressuring because I'm seeing a lot of angst and and the anxiety over, um, which I understand of like when am I gonna get this $1,200? I need it. When am I gonna uh, like? my unemployment claims taking forever to go go through or or for what i mentioned before like oh the extensions uh like i should qualify for them but they haven't set up a way for me to actually do it yet they just keep telling me oh they'll email me oh they'll email me like how am i going to pay for may's rent or, or even april's food like pressure your politicians who represent you because they can put pressure on the actual me mechanism or levers of government to get the stuff done quicker that's that's pretty much all i wanted to say to that it's just um I, don't know, I just find it disgraceful how slow it, uh, it is to roll out benefits and stuff for actual working class people and families. But they're able to, you know, disperse trillions of dollars to banks and corporations like it was just easy <laughs> because it's been done before. I think that's also yeah. the thing that with the checks, I remember reading there were articles saying that if you for your taxes, if you file taxes in period. So if you file taxes in 2018, 2019 and you had your your refund sent to you through direct deposit, you can have your check sent to you faster by what the mechanism is, but you're supposed to be able to, if you've done direct deposit in, the, in those past two years, then you should be able to get your check through direct deposit. So possibly keep an eye on your account because they're going to use that same you know that's, mechanism. Personally, that's what I keep checking because I've, I've done it through direct deposit with the IRS. Yeah. And, and I'm then, just like, 
how long is this going to take? Yeah, and they said that you should expect a check, like not a check, but like the the funds to be in your account if you've done direct deposit in the past. But if you haven't, they're individually mailing checks to people. Like every, I think it takes like two weeks to process and they're rolling them out, I guess, in buckets. So again, in politics, it's it's the experience that is not thoroughly mapped out and making sure that if you are getting direct deposit, that's great. But for the people who are getting mailed that check, there should be a priority. You know what I mean? Uh, What your income was, if it was if it was low, you guys should be getting the check first and you should be on the priority list to get another check installment. You know what I mean? And if you are higher income and you still have your job, you should be able to have that check delayed. You know what I mean? Like they're doing it based on your income brackets about your eligibility and how much money that Trump check will be. But they're not saying specifically, oh, if you make over a certain amount of money, that check, you know, that you're getting the like the maximum benefit bracket that should be sent to them last because there are people who are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck that have lost their paycheck. And there are people who have tons of savings that can live off those savings. And it's, again, knowing that priority and really analyzing the IRS data that should be happening. But I'm not hearing anything about the the methods and the, the ideology of how that amount is being dispersed. And it's something that us as citizens who are not holding political office, we should be raising a little bit of hell about. It's, again, that full experience end to end of making sure that the people who are most severely impacted by COVID-19, making sure that they have the the food, the shelter, extra spending money just in case their, you know, their landlord is expecting a month's rent and they aren't able to, you know, pay it because they've lost their job or they don't have the the amount they're expecting, you know, their hours were cut or something like that. So it's it's something I wanted to raise. Yeah. So they did say that they were going to uh, the IRS and the Treasury work on setting up a website for people who like whose addresses have changed and didn't get it from direct deposit because they realize that's a problem and that they were going to like, you know, you would go in and be able to confirm your information and update your like either a direct deposit information or um, where you live so they can mail it out to you. I haven't seen any update besides the like one day they said that they were going to do that on yeah, like the and- progress of that or like to see this is the problem with like means testing. Yeah. They could have just sent out 1200 to everybody and yeah. then next year's tax season tax away it for all the people who shouldn't have got it. That's yeah. all they could have done. It could have been like a loan for everybody else. And then for the majority of people who actually need it, it would just been like a grant. The other yeah. thing they could have done is which they already do do with is, is uh, with the small business administration part, the way the small business loans work is that people go to their regular banks and credit uh, lines where they go and they can fill out a form and and apply for this uh, grant loan program. There's no reason why they couldn't have just done it through that. Like they could have said like, well, you know, the quickest way to get people money is is they'll just go to the places where they usually withdraw money anyway. So let's have them just fill out the stuff the bank will give them the money it'll be like a loan sort of until uh that that, that the bank's guaranteeing them and then we'll just pay the loan yeah. <laughs> from they will pay for that the bank gave and that, again, it's, a, it it, it's that brainstorming session that if you had a federal ahead of the federal government that was open to new ideas and looked at you know pre-existing mechanisms and programs that are in place and then collaborated with people who understood it and all that great stuff that would 
you know, diplomatic leader, uh, an understanding leader, an empathetic leader would do. And <laughs> unfortunately, that's not, not happening. Good times. <laughs> yeah. So people just need to pressure their uh, state reps and politicians to make sure they get the aid they need. So we don't have to wait until, you know, December yeah. <laughs> for like what is supposed to be something that was emergency. Yeah. Because uh, if, if you can't, if you can't pay your rent in April, I don't think your landlord is going to take an IOU uh, that you can repay in December. <laughs> exactly. I have a story uh, uh, from when Governor Murphy was on Fox News on Tuesday. He said that, um, basically on a quote from it, uh, the great news is through all the stay at home, uh, and you know this because you live here, the aggressive stay at home policies that we put into place early, it looks like it's beginning to flatten the curve, uh, Murphy told the host Martha McCallum. Adding that the scientific models he looks at show that the Garden State is likely to reach its peak within the next two to three weeks. And um, so I think that's pretty good news, uh, actually, on the whole coronavirus thing. We, we would expect that the, these kind of lockdown measures, people wearing masks, people uh, uh, less and less people working and um, would just actually start flattening the curve and all that kind of stuff. So I think I think that's great. The, the one thing I worry about is uh, I, I think I mentioned it last week, but I'm going to mention it every week until we have some kind of national measure in place. If New Jersey and the other s- states around us in the tri-state area open up, but like people who are infected from like Florida, Georgia, like anywhere else like Pennsylvania can just come into our state, uh, they, we could just that can risk starting a secondary case of like, like wave of infections. And uh, there needs to be measures in place that that prevents that from happening. Otherwise, it, it could just make this go on a lot longer than it needs to. Exactly. Okay, so grocery store limits. Um, this isn't like a state policy, but a lot of uh, supermarkets and grocery stores are uh, doing things like uh, changing their hours or limiting the amount of people that can go into a grocery store. So I know places like Acme and ShopRite are doing that. But if you go on NJ.com, if you're curious, they have an art- article called uh, Supermarkets, Grocery Stores, are shifting hours, adding hours for seniors, and have purchase limits, what you need to know. So I'm not going to run through the whole article. You can just kind of grab details uh, from there. But I think these kind of measures are, are really good. I kind of wish they were more like state mandated so it was unified everywhere. But yeah. um, I also talk about my Acme experience this morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I went to uh, Acme near where I live. and uh, Do you want to disclose your condition? What's that? Do you want to disclose your condition? <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean? Oh, um, so I was a little like hungover, and uh, I, I, I couldn't. Really, I had like my mask on, and I'm just like barely hanging in there. I was like, I just, I'm coffee deprived. I just needed to get into Acme and buy like the five things I needed, and uh, I grab a cart and I just like get in line, but I don't understand why I'm doing that. And <laughs> I get like all these angry glares at me, and I'm like, what's going on? And that's when I noticed. I was like, oh, there's like a line to get in. And I just cut, so I had to. I apologize. I got into the back of the line. <laughs> it was a pretty long line, not in the sense of a lot of people being there, but it was more like uh, they had X's on the ground marked where you're, uh, you're supposed to stand and they're about six feet apart from the, each other. So you're wow. good social distancing. And uh, we had to wait until they weren't letting anyone in until uh, someone else left. And every aisle had um, arrows on it that indicated what direction you should be walking in to try to like manage the uh, the flow the of traffic. Flow. Even the aisle, um, sorry, the, the checkout lanes had spots where you're supposed to stand so that you can stay six feet um, away from each other. 
And I noticed the workers were wearing, uh, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but they were wearing masks and uh, which they weren't before. I don't know. I, th- I think that, that those, these are really good measures. Uh, just as another note, I noticed that like, I know it's mandated that everyone does it, but like everyone was wearing masks when I was in there, which was good to see. Uh, yeah, earlier new... in the month, I was pretty much the only one wearing a mask in my local grocery store. Uh, so I'm glad to see that people, whether by uh, force or like actual initiative uh, of their own, they're, they're taking this pretty seriously, which will help reduce infections. So good news. Yeah, I think it is good news. Next uh, up, New York summonses. Yeah. So tell me about uh, it. <laughs> So um, Newark issued 800 summonses and shutdowns of 44 businesses to stop the coronavirus spread, as reported in uh, NorthJersey.com. And basically, uh, the Newark police are clamping down on people that are ignoring the social distancing uh, mandates. And there's been a total of 824 summonses uh, issued by Newark police. The director of public safety, Anthony Ambrose, said, uh, we've stepped up our enforcement efforts to keep people safe. Those individuals and businesses who are not taking this health emergency seriously are being addressed to promote public safety throughout the city of Newark. There wasn't really much details offered about um, the people cited or the non-essential businesses that were closed. The only real information we have is that like no drivers were issued summons among the 824. So like no one was pulled over and been like, where are you going? You know, <laughs> that, that wasn't like uh, what was going on. This was based off of the reporting. It looks like it's clearly uh, people violating um, social distancing, businesses pretending to be, you know, uh, closed, but they're really open, closed, but they're really open or uh, essential, but they're not kind of. I remember uh, a few episodes ago, I mentioned about um, it, uh, I think it was in Patterson. There was like a cell phone store and some other stuff that like pretended they weren't open, but they but they actually were. And they tried to claim they were essential, they, but they aren't. Same thing with like smoke shops. It seems it seems good that these things are actually being enforced. Because I'm not usually for cops doing this kind of stuff. Uh, I know it's probably giving me a wrong people a wrong impression of the coronavirus, <laughs> like where I stand a lot of this stuff. But it's different when when you have like a public health emergency and people just like flaunting it, especially when it's like you're forcing your workers to come in to sell like what like like a cigar pipe, <laughs> a cell phone. Like like, like how does this help uh, during an emergency? Uh, so uh, what's up with this Rumson man facing charges over an allegedly illegal concert? Okay. Sounds like a fun story. (laughs) It is a fun story. So I'm going to review there. There's two articles on this that I'm going back and forth on. So there's a NBC New York article and the headline is New Jersey man charged after 30 adults gathered for Pink Floyd cover performance. And then um, the New Jersey 101.5 article is Rumson man faces charges for front lawn concert despite COVID-19. And so this Rumson man, he, right now police are trying to identify the people. It was like at least 30 people who attended, quote unquote, the front lawn Pink Floyd cover concert and violated rules of social distancing amid the coronavirus outbreak. So homeowner John Maljan, Maljan? Um, my bad, I can't pronounce his name, but he was charged with reckless endangerment, disorderly conduct, and two separate charges related to violating the emergency orders after he allegedly hosted a party outside his home on Black Point Road in Rumson on Saturday, according to police and the state attorney general's office. So the 54-year-old and another person were streaming the performance of Greatest Hits from the British rock band on their acoustic guitars on Facebook Live, according to authorities. So most of the crowd were between the ages of 40 and 50, 
And some of them sat on lawn chairs and enjoyed alcoholic beverages while they were less than six feet apart. So the guitarists were playing their music and officers say they interrupted the show, but the guitarist kept playing. And um, eventually he stopped playing and he, he was, it was a Facebook live stream. So he told his audience that the performance was over after a uh, officer directed him to <laughs> end his performance. And um, the, <laughs> the Rumson police says, uh, quote, when we informed everyone that they must leave in accordance with Governor Murphy's executive orders regarding these so-called Corona parties, we were met with wishes of F the police and, <laughs> and quote, welcome to Nazi Germany from this group of 40 to 50 year old adults. Um, <laughs> so, it's, a, it's a bit much to equate, um, you know, the systematic totalitarian society of Nazi Germany with, you know, the extermination of Jews and others so-called undesirables. <laughs> To breaking up, uh, you, you know, know hyperbole. Uh, yeah, hyperbole. <laughs> so a lawyer for the the man um, said that his client was trying to stream a musical performance on his front porch when a few neighbors came over to watch while practicing social distancing. The crowd eventually grew, but because it was dark, the guitarist, the homeowner, was unable to see just how large it had grown. And um, he said there was no ban; it was just him who was at, who was who went inside when the police arrived and had absolutely no knowledge of the horrible and vulgar things that people allegedly said to police. So again, you have this homeowner who is just playing music. Like a lot of people are like my husband and his family, they're all very musical people. And if you are a very musical person, you want to perform. And sometimes it's not conducive to perform. You know, I guess if he has other people in his house or his neighbors don't like him playing music in the house, maybe the neighbors have kids or whatever they could hear. I don't know his life. Obviously, I am speculating, but he should be allowed to go outside and play on his, you know, his porch music and live stream it to his friends and family. And it's dark and other people are gathering and they're drinking, you know, in public on the street. Like that's he can't he could only control himself. So if people are gathering yeah, the people who are punished. And does it really need to be that severe? Just tell them, like, hey, break it up. Yeah. And if they fail to disperse, I don't see how this man should be. I mean, maybe I'm biased because whatever reason, but I I don't think he should be this severely, you know, he shouldn't be charged with reckless endangerment and disorderly conduct and separate charges violating emergency orders. And because he allegedly hosted a party, he didn't contact his neighbors and say, hey, yo, like Pink Floyd concert, I'm playing you sit in the street and disobey, you know, the social distancing orders. He's just performing. And uh, the fact that it got this heated uh, just says that alcohol and coronavirus and uh, social distancing sometimes doesn't work. (laughs) Uh, That's pretty, that's pretty crazy story. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty interesting. And I don't know, we'll see how this story plays out in the future because I don't know how, fast it's going to go to court not like are you stuff. are you expecting more uh, uh allegedly illegal co- uh, <laughs> coronavirus concerts i wouldn't be surprised if there are more because i don't know it's it's one of those things like basically we're in a wartime situation and people are craving if you're a creator i mean i guess we are creators now mike because we have a podcast uh, Fair <laughs> enough. if you're a creator you need to create and there is that one quote um i forgot what philosopher said it but 
he said i create therefore i am or something like it was a play on i think therefore i am and humanity itself is i think one of the only species that can create tools and stuff like that and to create is a gift that we have and if you are a musician and you crave to play you're gonna even in this dark time you're gonna want to create songs and perform and if you're performing via a live stream you're really not harming anyone and if people gather for you while you're live streaming your performance it's wild like it's kind of like a i would speculate it's a in friction on um, freedom of speech, but we will see. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see where that goes. Yeah. I'm interested. And next up, the great debate. <laughs> Golfing. Golfing during the pandemic. So I'm going to review a NBC Philadelphia article really quick to give everyone the, the grounding, the foundation of this debate. So Golfing during the pandemic is not allowed in Pennsylvania. However, New Jersey, in New Jersey, some golfers aren't listening, quote unquote. (laughs) And so this article from NBC 10, Philadelphia by Denise Nanako, published on the 6th and updated on the 7th. She starts it off, a warm Sunday provided provided to be a temptation too tough to resist for several golfers who hauled their clubs onto local greens yesterday, defying state orders that golf courses be closed in Pennsylvania and New Jersey amid the coronavirus pandemic. Quote, it's just inappropriate, says uh, Tom Reisenberg, president of the Board of Governors for Coatesville Country Club. So Coatesville Country Club received complaints on Sunday about people playing a round of golf on the property as temperatures hovered around the mid-60s. Reisenberg believes a mix of members and non-members have been illegally coming onto the 140-acre facility. He's asking people to, quote, please stay at home and honor the rules put forth by the governor. And this country club is stepping up. According to this article, they're stepping up the measures to keep people from walking onto its closed golf course. Monday morning, staff added additional placards and, quote, no golf signs to holes 1, 2, and 13, which are most accessible from the street. And additionally, staff have blocked off parking lot entrances so golfers would get the message that teeing off will have to wait until the state reopens the courses. And meanwhile, the staff is working to maintain the grounds at the country club. Its food service is also open for pickup to help workers stay employed. And Pennsylvania, New Jersey golf courses were closed in March when the state declared a uh, shutdown of non-essential businesses. So in response, a coalition of golf organizations petitioned Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf and New Jersey Governor Bill Murphy to allow their courses to reopen. And both the governors said no. And um, apparently the golf industry associations have no plans on fighting it. And fun fact, Delaware is the only state in the area which golf courses have been remained open during the coronavirus pandemic, but with restrictions. So players must adhere to social distancing guidelines and follow safety precautions on the golf course. Now for the great debate. Do you, Mike, (laughs) believe that golf courses should be closed? Are you okay with them being slightly open? What is your opinion? This is a good question. So I want to give a little background so people don't think I'm biased. Uh, I personally hate golf, and I generally hate the people who golf. So so I feel like uh, I come from a unique perspective because uh, 
uh, I should be in favor of just closing these things completely because, well, I mean, I don't like the sport and I don't like usually don't like the people who uh, golf. But like, you know, I do have a couple friends who are golfers. I like them. But <laughs> or I wouldn't call them my friend. Yeah, I wouldn't call them my friend. Exactly. But it seems to me like as long as they're abiding by so, like golf is an inherently socially distant sport. Yeah. If you can call it a sport. But uh, <laughs> it, 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 I guess they're trying to stop people from congregating like like say say I wanted to golf and my friend's like, yo, it's golf. And then we meet up. That would be like violating social distancing, right? Yeah. To golf because then, uh, uh, I don't know, I guess assuming we had to wear masks. I I, I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I, there have to be like guidelines to actually allow people to golf in like a safe manner. Like maybe everyone has to wear masks and gloves and it's... stay like six feet apart, which doesn't seem too hard on a golf course. But otherwise, like if there's not going to be like actual mandated stuff, like I guess it is non-essential and they would just need to have, you know, the workers like do maintenance on the uh, golf courses so they because, you know, they, that stuff needs to be done. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this? I am also not a golfer. I don't like golf, but I am married to an avid golfer. Uh, <laughs> and he and some of his friends, they golf multiple times a week and a couple of his friends have memberships to country clubs so they can golf. And I've talked to them about it, about their stance on golfing during the pandemic and people who have memberships to country clubs. I didn't know this until recently, but you basically pay to have part ownership of that land. So you are technically, if you are a member of a country club, you are part owner, essentially. You own like a very, very small percentage, but technically it is your land too. And you, number one, you should, as a country club or, you know, groundskeeper, you have to maintain that property because if you were to let it go, you then diminish the value of that land. And number two, because you are paying for that land to be maintained, you kind of have even more right to walk it. And it's essentially a park, if you think about it. And if if you own a park, you should be allowed. It's basically like your backyard and you're inherently it's a, inherently a social distancing sport. You are on the ground by yourself or maybe with one other person. And if that other person is in your household, you're not violating anything, in my opinion. And for people to be outraged that, you know, because you're golfing, people have to maintain the course and you're putting people in danger. You're really not because people who work on the golf course that are still working there, you're helping provide them a job, number one, by visiting the golf course and by participating in their, you know, their food service portion of their, you know, their facilities. Because like we said in the article, it says that they're still remaining open, like the the food to, you know, gain income and keep people employed. So you are participating in all the right ways. And for people to be outraged by this, I think it's kind of silly. Like there are more, like the golfers aren't touching each other. You know what I mean? It's, they're abiding by all the rules. It's like getting offended by someone being in the park, taking a walk. You know what I mean? It's, I'm not mad about it. They're not endangering anyone. It is what it is, like, period. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I still, I still don't know where I stand on it. I don't. I wouldn't want them just to be open, completely yeah. operating as normal. But if they if they were able to, uh, which they seems like they, it'd be easy to do on a golf course, like I said, abide by like special you know guidelines because we're in a pandemic. Then I don't see why things like golf courses shouldn't be open. And it kind of goes to the same thing with like state parks. Like I'm not sure why we closed them. Or I get yeah. there was too many people going, but then just limit the amount of people that go to the state park. Like there's really not much to do. 
Yeah. <laughs> and going outside is one of the things that they're encouraged to do, not only because it's physically good for you to walk around outside, but it's good uh, for people's mental health as well, because we're just stuck inside. Otherwise, yeah, and also with golf courses, there aren't, you know, restroom facilities. So it's basically just a wide open park. And if you're paying for that park, then I think as an American, you have <laughs> full right to your your land and your property. So that's where I stand on it. I'm not golfing. I'm not encouraging my husband or any other golfer to go golfing. But am I going to be mad if I find out you are golfing? No. Like, bigger fish to fry. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah, a brave stance. Yeah. I stand by my stance. <laughs> All right. I think so that my... settles the uh, debate. I, I don't think we've actually settled it. It's just. Uh, it is what it is. Either us, yeah. <laughs> We're on the same, basically on the same side here. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Do you want to go now into your segment on the New Jersey primary? Yeah, um, I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about it. So, yeah, there was some hope earlier in the year, Bernie Sanders in and uh, it being such a close race that uh, between him and Joe Biden and the other uh, uh, at the time, you know, like 12, whatever candidates that New Jersey's uh, primary might actually matter. And then a series of crazy coincidences or so some what people would say like the dnc clamped down and actually got their shit together and uh basically you know, yeah got everyone to uh quit and then endorse biden which you know led to bernie kind of tanking and um mixed in with the whole coronavirus thing it's like what, what, what does this mean for the new jersey primary so we mentioned earlier that the new jersey primary has been moved to a new date uh july 7th and uh that's basically a month pushed back and the DNC convention, which was originally in, in July, I believe, uh, was pushed to August 17th through the 20th. And I guess I want to start with the Bernie campaign a little bit, just to kind of get that out of there. Because Bernie technically didn't drop out. And that, like, bothers me. Not because I'm for Bernie dropping out. I wanted him to fight on as as much as possible. Uh, yeah, as an alternative to Biden. Yeah. And to know, be an alternative like... to Biden. Because, like, come on, guys. Like, everyone's seen the videos. Um, unless you are the most like MSNBC brainwashed person, you have to know that. But there's Biden's not all there mentally. No, and, it's uh, like anyone that looks at Biden knows that the lights are on, but nobody's home. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. And not only that, but OK, so we have the whole uh, Joe Mencia thing. You have that. You have his entire history just being bad, you know, supporting the Iraq war, supporting uh, legislation that makes it harder for uh, people to discharge their debt and in bankruptcy, including student loans. Uh, you have him being so close to banks in Delaware that he was uh, jokingly referred to as the senator from MBNA. You have uh, uh, him being extremely tight with the uh, health insurance industry, which is why he doesn't support a Medicare for all system. You have issue after issue, Biden being against busing, uh, integrated busing, being against uh, or being uh, uh, so cozy with this is how old he is, too. Literal segregationists uh, that he gave a Strom Thurmond's funeral. He gave a eul like a eulogy praising him. Meanwhile, you know, you have someone like Bernie Sanders who has like a, just a long history of being consistently progressive. And you know, I don't support him on everything. I thought like, for instance, his support of the bombing of Yugoslavia and things like that are very troubling. And I don't like that. But it's just you can tell, like, listen to Biden and then listen to Bernie. Bernie's there. Like, yeah. he, he, like he, he, he understands what he's being asked and <laughs> knows how but to he, his memory but, is also there. If you absolutely. listen, if you listen to Biden speak, he is he's a rambler and he gets angry when confronted 
And he, I think the longer you're in politics, the more opportunity you have had to be bought. And very obvious, Biden's been bought. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and just, it, uh, it's just disappointing because now um, I was hoping that it, at the very least it would be a tight race all the way to the end. The coronavirus kind of and the uh, really killed turnout in a lot of states, which makes sense. That's actually like a kind of a predictable thing. So I guess uh, if we're thinking about what does this mean for the New Jersey primary, uh, I would say that it really kind of depends on the coronavirus situation, how bad turnout's going to be in in July. If we're expecting this to peak in in at June at the latest, it might be essentially over in New Jersey by by July, or at least I don't want to say over, but you know, like uh, significantly uh, reduced new fine. infections. Yeah, <laughs> it's also going to be. A, I think we were talking about this earlier off off the recording, but the the danger for down ballot candidates. If Biden's the only person on the ticket, what is my motivation? Or I mean, not me because I'm not a registered uh, Democrat. Uh, full disclosure, but what is the motivation for Democrats to turn out? Not a lot of people are engaged in local politics, and this podcast is one of our goals is to pe- make people more engaged and more aware of their states and local officials, their representatives, what they're doing, and how to get them in and out of office, depending on how they vote and how they act, especially during coronavirus times. But I, if I were a Democrat, I would not be motivated to go to the ballot because what's the point? Oh, you know, me neither. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Am I going to risk getting coronavirus to vote for Biden? Yeah. I, I, that even <laughs> applies to what's going on in November. I'm yeah. not advocating people not to vote, but like if anyone can, if anyone just comes up and tells me, he's like, man, you know, I just kind of don't feel like voting for, for Biden. Like the choices are awful. And I, I, I don't have really nothing to say to them. Yeah. Like, There's the credible thing- rape allegations against Biden. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just. It's just I think this is overall terrible for our democracy that the DNC is forcing us to have such a terrible candidate. It's, uh, it's I would say, in my opinion, it's handing Trump another four years because oh, absolutely. If, if it's possible, I don't know where we're going to be at in November, but if it's possible for Trump and Biden to debate Unless they give uh, Biden some some sniffs of cocaine and, you know, yeah, whatever, you know, (laughs) what what miracle drug did the last debate with him and Bernie, what miracle drug did they give Biden? Like, (laughs) what what the hell is it? So it's going to be crazy. Remember, we're going to have Biden versus Trump and either they're both going to be like, you know, they're on kind the of same a, miracle drug, on the same miracle (laughs) drug, which I think Biden, there's really no hope for him. But but Trump's going to crush him in a debate. Because he's going to have to just bring up a couple easy things, which one, he's Democrats like to pretend that the uh, uh, his cognitive climb, which is clear to everybody, is a right wing conspiracy theory. But it's not. The MSNBC has sheltered uh, people, uh, Democrats, into thinking that this is not a real thing or that it doesn't matter. But it does matter for people. It matters for people who are independent. It matters for a lot of Democratic voters. Biden's support among Democrats the enthusiasm to go out and vote for him is only 24%. That's not good. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, uh, enthusiasm among Republican voters is is over 50%. So we're going to see that. Uh, and also you have Trump have the advantage of being the incumbent, which always gives an advantage. It's still, I don't want to say it's totally in for Trump because you have, depending on how this coronavirus thing plays out and uh, the economic fallout. So like usually during disasters, incumbents rise in popularity. Right. You actually saw when the coronavirus thing first hit, Trump's approval rating went up to like the highest it's ever been. But 
the, as the economy tanked, his approval rating kind of went down. So it really depends on how all these things interact. But I just don't see Biden having a strong performance. I see turnout being low in July. I see turnout being really low in November. And I just see the next four years of, of a Trump presidency, Democrats not learning any lessons Anything. from this. And they're just going to blame Bernie, Bernie supporters, non-voters. Yeah. And instead of looking at like, you're not, you have to get people to want to vote for you. That's the yeah. point. You, you can't just shame people to vote. It doesn't they've, work. They've made themselves believe and made the wider public believe that being a Democrat is a rank and file operation. You know what I mean? You yeah. are registered and you, you bleed blue <laughs> and you vote blue. Like Yeah. Vote blue no matter who, yeah. by the way, it doesn't work. <laughs> Okay. And it's just, it doesn't it's, work. It's stupid. It never, it's never worked. It's just a way to shame you to voting for candidates that, that you hate and who actually hate you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it's <laughs> funny. Like, like, does anyone believe Biden cares about no. you? And it's also the, what we talked about before is with Trump supporters and people who like his approval rating, people are going to go to the ballot and they're going to say, is my life better or worse with Trump in office? And coming off the coronavirus pandemic, people are like, okay, what happened? Well, my student loans were frozen. Didn't have to pay those. I got a check in the mail. Cool. And Biden was missing for much of the action. He was unable to string together a sentence or a thought. Yeah, we can't Uh, forget his absence. That's actually (laughs) huge. He was he's been absent. He's been gone. And what is he doing? Like now that he's been, you know, put on this pedestal because he's the only one. They are, uh, let's he, also just talk about real quick when he does appear, as you said, he can't string a sentence together. And then it's not only that he's the only one is what they're calling. They're saying he's the most electable. How yes. how insane is this? It's like we're being gaslit by the Democratic Party and like liberal media, Democratic aligned media into thinking that this buffoon who lies all the time yeah. is, is actually more electable than someone like Bernie Sanders, whose policies, if you actually poll people, they overwhelmingly want. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting. I'm going to, so I'm not surprised this is what happened uh, the last presidential election. I went to bed and it was Hillary versus Trump. And I said, guess what? She insulted half the voters and she put people up to speak poorly about people who supported her opponent at the time, Bernie. And then they, you know, they basically rigged her campaign up and they said that she was the better. She was most likable. She was going to win. And guess who won? Trump. And I went to bed before he was the winner. And I said, he's going to win because of her antics and the Democratic, the DNC, because of their antics. And that's that. And I woke up and it was a new day. Trump was president and everything hit the fan. And (laughs) now we're in a situation where we have this man who's president who is incompetent as president, who is a known racist and rapist and everything under the sun, and they couldn't impeach him. And now he's up again for election and he put Biden. It's literally like (laughs) the Democrats are trying to lose November. I I, I almost because of the coronavirus stuff, I almost forgot about impeachment. Right. But they so messed up impeachment. Now, yes, I know anyone's listening is going to push back. It's going to be like, well, you know, McConnell ran the entire Senate. Well, yeah. So maybe that's one of the reasons why you shouldn't have brought up impeachment on such narrow charges that we're never going to pass in the Senate. Secondly, if you're going to take that political risk, they should have had much wider things like 
They could have been highlighting Trump's uh, uh, violation of the emoluments clause, showing that he's been profiting off of his presidency, yep. which is illegal. They could have went through like all these things that went that even if it lost, it would have tarnished Trump enough and hurt him enough in the media. So people would have been like, wow, I didn't realize how corrupt he is. I didn't realize yeah. all this kind of corruption he's been doing. Instead, they picked the thing that is so narrow that yeah. it's about Ukraine and investigating Hunter Biden and the withholding of military aid, military aid that uh, Obama didn't even want to give to uh, Ukraine when he was president um, because he thought it would be too dangerous and escalatory to Russia that now the Democrats are in favor of because because Trump's against it, but also not really against it because he has been giving military aid. So it's like this constant thing that no one understands what the actual thing was at play with impeachment. All they know is that, wait a minute, Hunter Biden was... was, (laughs) Got $80,000 a month working on some energy board. He doesn't speak Russian, Ukrainian, or know anything about energy. And he was just happened to be the vice president's son. And Democrats are saying that's not corrupt. Yes. Just, uh, come on, guys. And I think it's also something to point out, again, what your politicians are doing and how it benefits them and not you. They could have had all that extra stuff on the impeachment case, but they didn't. And I, I bet you... I don't have much, but I bet you everything I have <laughs> that it was because it would have raised some flags for themselves and their, you know, their supporters, their financial supporters who have, have bought their elections for them and maintain, you know, their seat for them. And it's just it's disgusting. Right. I, I agree. <laughs> uh, just wrapping up a little bit, I think just to bring it back to New Jersey, I think it, what, what really sucks about all this is and you mentioned it, the, the down ballot. Uh, uh, races. Um, you got in, in the primary, you got some really interesting insurgent candidates, like we mentioned, I think in the first episode, Larry Ham, who was challenging Cory Booker for the Senate seat. And um, uh, I mean, I'm not going to pronounce that his campaign's dead, but like you can't campaign really because of social yeah. distancing. It's not a good idea to do it anyway. And the turnout's going to be super low. I said before, it's already going to be hard for him to win because uh, there's the kind of the incumbency bias, but also like he's going to need to get his name out. He's going to need to turn out, have a uh, turnout be really high. Uh, money. He's going to need a lot of money. Need a lot of money and turnout's <laughs> going to be low now. And it's going to be very difficult for these, anyone challenging any incumbent right now to win. So it's just, it's a, it's a pretty crappy political situation to be in. Part of it's forced by the Democrats. Other, other part of it is uh, just because of the, the coronavirus. Yeah. I think what we could do is have Colin come back, founder of Field Wins, and have him discuss his opinion on how, how people could campaign during this time. That's you know? Good, yeah, we should ask him about that. Yeah. Um, We're going to bring Colin back, guys. If you haven't listened to our interview with uh, Colin of Field Wins, uh, uh, check it out. I think it's um, two episodes ago, but yeah. either way, you, you'll see it. It's it's great. It was a really informative discussion. So, uh Casey, what's going on with Annie Oakley? Um, <laughs> I guess it's not going on with her. She's no longer around. But <laughs> yeah, she's no longer. What happened with her? Um, yeah. So I wanted to bring a story to our listeners to help distract from today's, you know, bleak uh, current events and bring some New Jersey history to light. So I went to the New Jersey Hall of Fame, you know, searching for some inspiration. Saw an interesting name pop up on the 2012 inductee list. So Annie Oakley. And I, I knew she was, I knew vaguely about her because she was a, you know, infamous world, I mean, not world, she was, I mean, she was worldwide infamous, but she was an Old West sharpshooter, but I did not know about any tie she had to New Jersey. So I, when I saw that she was an inductee of the 2012 Hall of Fame, I wanted to know why exactly is Annie Oakley on this list? And um, 
So I wanted to share this story of this historic New Jerseyan because we both know that once you come to New Jersey and you live in New Jersey, you can't really shake that New Jersey resident. Once you come to New Jersey, you're a New Jerseyan. Um, that's, a, so, that's absolutely true. <laughs> so Annie Oakley, she was born Phoebe Ann Annie Mosey on August 13th, 1860. So she was a Leo for those of you who are into astrology. And she was born in a log cabin less than two miles northwest of Woodland in Willowdale in Dark County, Ohio, a rural county alongside the state's border with Indiana. And so just so you guys know, I got a majority of this information from her Wikipedia page. So credit where credit is due. And I'll also call out a New York Times article and some also uh, some internet articles to, you know, color in her story. So she was born to Susan Wise Mosey and Jacob Mosey. They were English Quakers who lived in Hollidaysburg, Blair County, Pennsylvania. And Susan, her mother, was 18 when she married 49-year-old Jacob in 1848. So remember, it's the 1800s. So this is today. It's a shocking <laughs> age difference in a marriage, but back then it was probably an arrangement. Because once you're 18 by in the 1800s, you're almost an old maid. So <laughs> <laughs> I bet her parents were like, "Okay, good riddance." Um, <laughs> so Annie was born and she was the sixth child of her parents. So her siblings were Mary Jane, born 1851, Lydia, born 1852, Elizabeth, born 1855, Sarah Ellen, born 1857, Catherine, 1859, again, a lot of girls, John, 1861, and Hulda, 1864, and a stillborn infant brother in 1865. So Annie's father, who had fought in the War of 1812, became an invalid from hypothermia during a blizzard in late 1865 and died of pneumonia in early 1866 at the age of 66. So he, back in the back in the day, I feel like that is an old age, you know, not too bad of a lifespan. But her mother later remarried Daniel Bromberg and had one more child, Emily, in 1868, and then was widowed for a second time. So she's kind of a, a black widow, kind I guess. Seems, kind of seems tragic. Kind of seems tragic and a little suspicious. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> again, as a woman, you can't vote, you can't own property. And um, she she and her husband, they lived, um, they lived on a, a farm that they would later repurchase with a, a mortgage in Ohio with her first husband. So farm life, you kind of want to have a lot of kids to work the land. And if your husband dies, you need to remarry because that land could potentially be taken from you. And then you're going to be a widow with like seven kids and no job. <laughs> so it's not a good time to not have a husband or be a woman. So because of poverty following the death of her father, Annie uh, did not regularly attend school as a child, although she did attend later in childhood um, and in adulthood. So on March 15th, 1870, at the age of nine, she was admitted to the Dark County Infirmary, infirmary, what? Infirmary. Yeah, um, the infirmary. The infirmary, not like a medical, but it's basically like a, a school building, I guess, like a, a lodging, along with her sister Sarah Ellen. So, according to her autobiography, she was put in the care of the infirmary's superintendent Samuel Crawford Eddington and his wife Nancy, who taught her how to sew and decorate. And in the beginning of the spring of 1870, she was bonded out to a local family to help care for their infant son, 
So what was a bound girl or a bound boy? According to is that like a, is that like a indentured serpent kind of thing? Yeah. So according wow. to the Ohio Reading Road Trip org, which is a weird source, I know. Um, for centuries, children have been illegally bound as servants. So in 1700s, in America, it was very common for parents to send a child to live with neighbors or relatives who could provide a good education and teach the child a skill or trade. And often, poor parents did not have a choice about this. So their children would be removed from their homes by local authorities and bound out as servants to, quote, unquote, more respectable families. This meant That's they awful. had to... Yeah, this meant that they had to work for their master for a certain number of years, usually until they were 21, in exchange for food, shelter, and some sort of education. And these bound children, like you said, were essentially indentured servants. And fun fact about me, my actually great, 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 I don't know how many greats removed, uh, grandfather was actually orphaned with his sister around this time and had this exact arrangement until he and his sister were adopted out of the orphanage. So wow, that's that's pretty crazy. I, yeah, I he was he was bound to a doctor and he had to do work around the doctor's house and office. So it was a very widely practiced thing at the time. And just to give you a glimpse of what life was back like back in Annie Oakley childhood days, child workers were a huge part of society. So according to all that's interesting dot com. The benefits of child labor seriously outweighed the perceived drawbacks, uh, which were dead and mangled children. And kids were, went to work by the millions. So from ancient times, children would work on their family's farm. And the children of peasants, of course, were bound to work the land just as their parents were. And uh, the children of slaves never really enjoyed any protection from hard labor. And a young field hen would typically get started uh, toting water and helping out with uh, secondary jobs as young as the age of four. So this is a thing that um, I think when slavery was, even, I think during slavery, there were still indentured servitude and it's just the same, same thing, but slavery yeah. is obviously a yes. lot worse. Yeah. And so I, I could talk a little bit yeah. about that. So like, especially in the United States, there was a couple different forms of slavery that was practiced and indentured servitude was a way in which poor immigrants, usually in Europe, um, would basically pay for their voyage and start up uh, like capital, like jobs and other stuff like that by becoming a, a servant for like a certain amount of time. So ba basically uh, contracts could last between like 10 to 30 years. And at the end of that, you sometimes you were guaranteed a uh, a plot of land of your own, usually after the first. So like there would be like these mega plantations or like workshops uh, uh, in, and then they would divide up like land or like resources or stuff like that and give it to you at the end of your term. Whereas like Africans were brought over uh, as chattel slaves, which, you know, as everyone knows, uh, the kind of horrendous conditions that they were kept in. Both indentured servants and, and chattel slaves were kept in like terrible conditions, but at, at least from the point of view of the indentured servant, their their condition of bondage was was temporary, whereas the chattel slaves was often for life. Often not for life unless they ran away or um, the position was also inherited by their children, which is not something that was usually the case with indentured servitude. Yeah, not a not a good time. No, it's uh, a good time to live. And uh, there are also things called uh, children's workhouses that existed, especially in, in Britain as early as the late 
18th century and were essentially seen as great humanitarian institutions yes, for considered progressive. Yeah, considered progressive for orphans because it was different than um because they used to just have poor houses essentially and it was the whole family and sometimes family were separated but it was just heinous working conditions you were all put in this weird uniform and everyone like knew that you were poor and living in this poor house and you had to work basically for your keep and um there were reformists that came in and they're like this is awful for children let's just make a children's version of this so <laughs> these children's workhouses were created and um they thought of it, well, it's all the children being together and they have food, shelter, whatever they need. And then you have them like basically like chartered out to do work for wealthier, more established people. But there were also frequent beatings that were, you know, felt to build character in these orphan children, you know, because they haven't been through enough. So it was so ingrained and that the attitude that the children were a legitimate part of the workforce that when Massachusetts tried to restrict children's working hours to a mere 10 per day, 10 per day, 10 hours per day in 1842, the measure was roundly criticized as a government overreach and barely enforced in practice. So this is where Annie is being like, this is the time where she's being raised. So she, on the false promise of 50 cents per week, so equivalent to $10 in 2019 in an education, Annie goes from the the superintendent's care to this couple, and they don't really um, say who the couple was, and she's supposed to take care of their infant son. So the couple originally wanted someone who could pump water and cook and who was a lot bigger, but she's like, I think it's time, like nine years old. So she spent about two years in near slavery to them, enduring mental and physical abuse. And one time the wife put Annie out in the freezing cold. This is Ohio freezing cold, mind you, without shoes as punishment because she had fallen asleep or over some darning. So Annie, in her autobiography, referred to them as the wolves, and um, she would never reveal the couple's name. So I feel like that's an interesting thing because typically... I don't know. When you become famous, you want to like burn that bridge of your abuser and, you know, shame them for everything like like we like to do on this podcast, name and shame. But she kept it a secret about who they were. So around uh, the spring of 1872, Annie ran away from the wolves. And according to her biographer, Cheryl Casper, it was um, only at that point where Annie met and lived with the Eddingtons and then returned to her mother's home around the age of 15. So at this time, Annie's mother marries for a third time to this guy named Joseph Shaw in um, on October 25th, 1874. Now, Annie, who, um, mind you, since she was probably like seven or eight before she went to that, that school and then was basically um, enslaved and abused, she had been trapping before the age of seven. So she was shooting and hunting by age eight to support her siblings and her widowed mother before she was sent to the infirmary with her sister. So Annie also ended up selling um, her hunted game to locals in Greensville, such as shopkeepers Charles and G. Anthony Katzenberger, who shipped it to hotels in Cincinnati and other cities. So she was selling her game to restaurants and hotels in Northern Ohio as well. So she was basically killing enough game and hunting enough that she was able to provide meals for like these rich established people and to say she was a good sharpshooter is an understatement she literally bought her mother's farm for her 
with her hunting skills by the time she was 15. So she ends up becoming a legend in the region because of her hunting skills. And I'm just at this moment when I was reading about her, I was just so proud of her because she went through this awful thing and she saw her family basically almost become destitute. And she went away with her sister to, I guess, alleviate the 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 burden for her mom, who was twice widowed, you know what I mean, with like eight kids. So she bites the bullet with her sister and goes to this uh, this school and then gets abused and then runs away and comes back and helps buy her mother's farm for her from her hunting. So I was really proud of Annie at this moment. And on Thanksgiving Day in 1875, the Brownman and Butler Shooting Act was performing in Cincinnati, Ohio, of course. Traveling show marksman and former dog trainer Frank E. Butler, an Irish immigrant, placed a $100 bet per side um, equivalent to about like $2,328 today with yeah, that's more than that's more than the Trump bucks yeah <laughs> just for reference uh he placed a bet with Cincinnati hotel owner Jack Frost that he could beat any local fancy shooter so the hotel owner already knowing about the legendary Annie and he probably bought like a lot of her her hunting uh trappings he arranged a match between Butler and the 15 year old Annie saying the last opponent Butler expected to Face was a five foot tall, 15 year old girl named Annie. <laughs> <laughs> so after missing his 25th shot, Butler lost the match and the bet. And there's another account that says uh, Butler hit um, on his last shot, but the bird fell about two feet beyond the boundary line. Um, I don't really, I didn't really get into like what this match entailed because I don't think it's completely relevant, but um, he soon after he lost, he soon began Annie and they eventually get married and there's a lot of speculation on when the two actually got married because he was originally married um, kind of estranged with his first wife Henrietta Sanders Saunders but regardless of when they got married um, they ended up not having any children and they just instead went to tour the world together so Annie and Frank Butler they live in Cincinnati for a long time Oakley, the stage name that Annie eventually adopted when she and Frank began performing together, is believed to have been taken from either the city's neighborhood of Oakley, where they resided, or um, she was rumored to have taken on the name because it was the name of a man who had paid her train fare when she was a child. Maybe when she ran away. Not too sure, but... uh, it's a little fun fact, I guess. So during their first engagement with the Buffalo Bill show, Oakley experienced a tense professional rivalry with rifle sharpshooter Lillian Smith. So it's a little bit of a, you know, a Britney Christina time. <laughs> <laughs> but with, with firearms. In the but with firearms. Um, so Smith was about 11 years younger than Oakley. She was around 15 at the time when she joined the show in 1886, which may have been the primary reason that Oakley would eventually alter her actual age years later due to Smith's press coverage and becoming um, a little bit more favorable than hers. And Oakley eventually like temporarily left the show, but returned a couple years later after Smith departed. She was like, "There's this town ain't big enough for the both of us. So she leaves and comes back to the, the show for the Paris exhibition of 18. 18- 89. So this three-year tour only cemented Oakley as America's first female star. So she earned more money than any other performer in the show beyond um, Buffalo Bill. So like the owner of the show and the namesake of the show. And she performed um, in many sideshows to earn extra income. So she was just making bank. Like she was making bank when she was just 
hunting in Ohio and providing for basically all the hotels and restaurants, uh, their, their big game. But she ends up making a ton of money just touring the world with her husband for this uh, show. And in Europe, she performed for Queen Victoria of the UK, King Umberto I of Italy, President Mary Francois. Saudi of France. I don't know how to pronounce it. I bet you could pronounce it better than me, Mike. Um, <laughs> and then Oakley supposedly um, shot the ashes off a cigarette held by newly crowned German Kaiser Wilhelm II at his request. So damn, she is real good. <laughs> and these people, these heads of state are having her perform and like basically shoot at them. It's also extremely impressive because these guns weren't like hyper accurate like the ones we have today. No, uh, I'm not super familiar with, with with firearms. I just I just know that they weren't. Yeah. It wasn't like she was shooting like an M16, yeah, you know, like an AR15. Yeah, it's yeah. It's unheard of, and it's also because she's a female. Like I want to highlight Absolutely. this. Yeah. Like she is a woman sharpshooter, and it's at a time where women are allowed to be in the military. When were women allowed to vote? It was like the 19 hundreds so she's not allowed to vote she's probably not allowed to own property at the time speculating probably um and she is traveling the world being a total badass just like shooting heads of state (laughs) right so this is about when from 1892 the story comes to new jersey so from 1892 to 1904 oakley and her husband make their home in nutley new jersey and um this is about the time she starts uh, not not performing, but she slows down a little bit. You know, she's not doing her crazy world tour act anymore. She's kind of taking a little bit of a break. And in 1901, the same year as McKinley's assassination, Oakley was badly injured in a train accident, but recovered after temporary paralysis and five spinal operations. So she ends up leaving the Buffalo Bill show in 1902 and began a less taxing acting career in a stage play written especially for her called The Western Girl. So Oakley plays the role of Nancy Berry, who used a pistol, a rifle, and a rope to outsmart a group of outlaws. So basically, she's playing herself. (laughs) (laughs) And throughout her career, it is believed that Oakley taught more than 15,000 women how to use a gun. Um, Oakley believes... Oh, incredible. Yeah, it's... She was... Obviously, like a, a gun use advocate and for women, especially because back in the time where you don't have any rights. And I think a lot of people who have guns and who, who are like, I'm a person who I'm not I wouldn't say I'm an advocate for gun ownership, but I understand it. And the historical value for women to know guns and own guns is especially during that time. You don't have many rights. And you don't have many ways to protect yourself. So if you are trained in using a firearm, not only can you protect yourself, but you can provide for yourself. And I think that's all what Annie Oakley was about, was that she needed to provide for her family. And the only way she knew how was to get a gun, like Annie, get your gun. (laughs) And she provided for her family and provided for herself and toured the world and became this, uh, this figure of basically women's rights, I would say. And like a worldwide sensation, as you said, that like she's performing for like European nobility. Yeah. Oakley believed uh, strongly that it was crucial for a woman to learn how to use a gun as not only a form of physical and mental exercise, but also to defend themselves. Like I said, she said, quote, I would like to see every woman know how to handle a gun as naturally as they know how to handle babies. 
Nice. Boom. I like that. Um, <laughs> So in um, 1912, the Butlers eventually moved to Cambridge, Maryland, and then in 1917, they moved to North Carolina. She continued to set records into her 60s and also engaged in extensive philanthropy for women's rights and other causes, including the support of young women she knew. She embarked on a comeback and intended to star in a feature-length silent movie. She hit 100 clay targets in a row from 16 yards at the age of 62 in a 1922 shooting contest in Pinehurst, North Carolina. So she was still badass in her 60s shooting, (laughs) demonstrating her prowess like... It's amazing. That is really impressive. Like, I, I, I don't think I could ever do that at any age, let alone uh, when I'm like 60 something years old, like making exactly. world records and stuff like that. It's cool. And this is after she had that train accident and was partially paralyzed and had all those spinal surgeries. So she's still just badass. So in late 1922, the couple were in a car accident that forced her to wear a steel brace on her right leg. She eventually performed again after more than a year of recovery, and she still set records in 1924. In 1925, her health started to decline, and she eventually would die of pernicious anemia in Greenville, Ohio, at the age of 66 on November 3rd, 1962. Same age as her dad, oddly enough, um, when he died. But Butler, her husband, was so grieved by her death, according to B. Haugen, which I think could have been a, one of their biographers, that he stopped eating and died 18 days later in Michigan, and his body was buried next to Oakley's ashes. So after her death, her incomplete autobiography was given to stage comedian Fred Stone, and it was then discovered that her entire fortune that she's amassed over her lifetime bent on her family and her charities. So she didn't have one cent left over to like give to any kind of heir. Like she's she lived her life to its fullest and became this icon around the world. And even today, like everyone knows who Annie Oakley is vaguely. Like it's part of our our group consciousness. And she made sure to advocate for what she believed in and represented herself in such a way that she's just like this phenomenal legend. And uh, that's the full story of Annie Oakley and her New Jersey connection. So who'd have known? I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know pretty much any of this, which is <laughs> well, I mean, I knew, I, like you said, I vaguely knew who she was, like uh, shooting stuff. I didn't know like the full, her full story. And yeah, her so she went from connection to New Jersey and adventured um, child servant to running away to buying her mother's farm, to traveling the world and hanging out with heads of state and coming to New Jersey, performing in a play basically about her and being an advocate for yeah. for women and women's rights too. That's that's incredible. And you also um, she was a woman of her time that didn't have any children. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. For her to be so beloved and to have such a great reputation to travel the world and do what she really loved, it's really unheard of. Yeah, I think like these larger than life figures are really interesting because you have like a a kind of um, spectrum of them from like people who are like larger than life back then because they were like just terrible monstrosities of human (laughs) beings. But then you have people like Annie Oakley who, who were just like went through so much terrible stuff herself and then comes out of it just being like an incredible figure of not just history but just like as a human being um so it's just yeah it's really interesting and that about wraps up our episode mike 
Uh, yes, it does. So I um, just wanted to, again, plug the Instagram. Uh, check it out if you haven't already. Check us out on Twitter at uh, Jersey underscore matters. And also um, make sure to we are now on Apple Podcasts. So uh, please rate and review us. Um, only if you're going to give us four or five stars. I don't care. Don't write us for good and give us one. Yeah. Um, and if you do, at least make it funny. <laughs> make it funny. Yeah, give us a funny one. But seriously, rate and review us. Um, it, it's important that we beat NJ101.5's ratings on um, Apple Podcasts. I think um, that's our number one goal right now. <laughs> it is. It's my only goal in life is to make sure that we are better than NJ101.5. So uh, that's it. I'm going to sign off. Hopefully, uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a good Easter. Be safe. Don't go to church. Um, <laughs> <laughs> go to church virtually if you virtually if you want yeah, to. yeah 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 practice your religion safely if you practice it at all but uh this is mike perino and this is casey mclean we'll see you next week